Hello and welcome to This Study Shows. I'm Danielle George. And I'm Marianne O'Hotta. And This Study Shows is a podcast from Wiley Research, all about how your research matters and has to be shared. In this episode, we're going to explore some really good ideas for reaching out to the public and encouraging active engagement in science. We'll find out a bit more about what this involves as we go along, but at the heart of it is an effort to help everyone feel that science is accessible to them and that scientists themselves are trustworthy. Okay, so I'll go first. Danielle, I want to tell you about this person I spoke to recently called Colby Brown. Hmm. He works at the NYC Health and Hospitals in Harlem in the US. He's a project manager for something called the All of Us Research Program. Mm -hmm. This is what it aims to do. The All of Us Program is an effort to get one million or more participants Uh, involved in a precision medicine uh, initiative here in the the United States. Uh, The program is run by the National Institutes of Health, uh, and we're looking at how lifestyle, genetics, and environmental factors, how all of those things combined uh, impact our health. And the goal would then be able to allow researchers to access the data uh, that is collected, and hopefully uh, some better treatments can come out of that, that research. The scale of the thing is absolutely unprecedented and the All of Us program have some clear goals about where they get their information from. There is a real uh, push in terms of getting a a diverse cohort that actually represents uh, the population of the United States. So, you know, traditionally there are a lot of groups that have been left out of uh, biomedical research and have not been represented in that research. And so this program has a value of really reaching out to those communities um, and getting them to uh, to participate in an effort like this. Why is it that certain communities have been excluded from medical research, that that we've ended up in a situation where the average, inverted commas, person is white, is male, is middle-class, suburban? So uh, two things I would say that uh, one, there have been these populations that we're talking about um, have not been invited um, in a lot of cases to participate uh, in research. And then we also, unfortunately, have the historical legacy of there being ethical violations uh, in, in research. So if we're thinking about the Tuskegee uh, study here in the United States. Um, right. So this is uh, so this is where. 600 African-American men who had syphilis were effectively denied treatment for a period of some, what, 40 years in order for doctors to study what was going to happen to them in the course of the disease. That, that That's correct. Um, and if you're thinking about that, I mean, this is something that didn't really come to light in the United States until, you know, the early 1970s. You know, so if I think about uh, even in my own life, you know, that my father... Um, you know, was a teenager when this happened. Um, and so just personally, personally, you know, he knows the work that I'm doing and the program I'm a part of, um, but there's still suspicion there. You know, that's something that's happened in people's lifetimes. Um, so that's definitely something uh, that's a barrier at times when we're trying to get uh, some of these uh, communities that have not been a part of research um, involved and to participate. So there are some really strong reasons why you might be suspicious of getting involved with medical research. 
uh, convincing people that this is a good thing to be part of can't really be fast-tracked. It basically depends on building genuine relationships with communities, but on a person-to-person level. And from that, you get a broader trust in the actual process and the institutions involved. Colby says it's really important part of the program, this idea of partnership, about building relationships with participants where they're not just taking information and then leaving. Those interpersonal relationships that are fostered and having these conversations and dialogue are really, really important. Um, Being able to go to participants when we're asking them to consider participating in this and saying, hey, I, as Kobe Brown, have participated in this program as well. So I'm coming to you um, and I'm not asking you to participate in something that I myself don't believe in. You know, that I, I've, I've got some stakes in this as well, that this is important and I some skin in the game, if you will. <laughs> um, you know, the other thing I, I would say to you is that, um, you know, having a conversation one-on-one is really important. So Marianne, if I could, uh, you know, we're talking and if, and if you're kind of convinced about this program, you actually go through the steps to enroll and participate then you actually kind of become an ambassador yourself. And so we've seen a lot of people um, or a lot of participants where, hey, Mary Ann participated in this after having talked with Colby. It was a good experience. I now see what the surveys are. I've gone through the consent process uh, and feel comfortable with it. You know, we'll have people who will then come back and bring their husband or bring, you know, bring another family member or friend. But as well as more day-to-day word-of-mouth conversations, Colby says that people are also convinced by a more existential thought. The idea that they can contribute and do something uh, that will have a benefit um, for future generations is really powerful. So if there's systematic racial bias in the medical research being done, as well as a community that's reluctant to engage with and might not trust healthcare services you're going to end up with health disparities in that community. And it's really evident in the area that Colby works in, Harlem in New York. And it's another way that he helps convince people to actually get involved in the first place. A really powerful thing is, is explaining to people, I understand some of your reservations potentially. Um, I'm not going to, yes, I'm going to be transparent about what's occurred in the past. But if, if we don't participate, if we don't get involved in this in this effort, um, there will still be breakthroughs that will occur. There will be there will be lessons that are learned. Uh, but if we're not involved, we will continue uh, to be left out. I'm struck by something one of our interviewees in this series said, which is that up until now, uh, science has said, oh, you know, eth- ethnic minority communities, women, they're not interested in science. And the reality is that science hasn't been interested in them. And we need to yes. reframe, we need to change the conversation, we need to change those preconceptions and actually acknowledge that we all have a part to play in in creating a, a more equitable future. Absolutely. And, and if I just could, um, I would also add that these groups are not homogenous. I mean, you know, the African-American community in terms of why certain people, you know, may participate or or, or not. I mean, the, the, those issues, um, again, I think some people just frankly have not been asked. <laughs> you haven't been asked, or, you have not been asked to participate or we have not set up kind of a research structure where these groups are reached out to, right? I think people just really need to expand their thinking on this whole subject matter <laughs> in its, uh, its entirety. So... Um, it's very resource intensive, isn't it? Not oh recruiting the people who are convenient, but recruiting the people who are 
historically underrepresented. It's because they don't have the internet, because they live in really remote places. It's because they never see their local family doctor. Yeah, it is absolutely, yes, yes. That is, that is it is definitely resource intense. Um, it, it is It is a lot of work. There, there's a lot of walking people through the process and, and, and remaining a kind of a close partner um, with, with people. But I think if that's what's required, then that's what we need, uh, need to do to make sure that we're not leaving anyone behind. Danielle, it's such exciting times for this research program. There are 330 million people in the US and all of us want to recruit 1 million as participants. And they reckon they're going to have everybody by 2024 recruited and they're just developing their research workbenches now. It's really exciting times. And I mean, I think this really shows the serious side of of science communication you know they're they're building bridges they're saving lives they're working on that individual basis but on a mass mass scale it's incredible yeah and i think it it transforms things for researchers as well because so much research fails clinical research fails because either participants drop out or they can't recruit the participants in the first place it's such a resource intensive time intensive and therefore money intensive aspect of of clinical research Mm. that if all of us can go look we've got these million people who are already signed up to the idea of it you go out and and start using them as partners in your research and everybody benefits i mean that's it's mind-blowing i love it yeah it really is that sort of the open source nature of it you know that amazing resource for for researchers is incredible Okay, Marianne, question for you. Have you heard of Galaxy Zoo? No. I feel bad saying no. It sounds fun or interesting or both. But no, what is it? What is it? It is, it is fun. It's interesting. It is citizen scientists at its best, I would say. Um, around 2007, an astrophysicist called Kevin Shawinsky was set the task of classifying more than 900,000 galaxies by eye. Now, all of these galaxies had been imaged, so observed with different telescopes by the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. And it was estimated that a perfect graduate student would have to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week for around three to five years to classify all of those galaxies in the sample just <laughs> once, just once. So okay, obviously... That- That doesn't sound reasonable. No, no, not realistic at all. So Kevin got together with Chris Lintott and together they founded something called Galaxy Zoo. And it's a people-powered astronomy project. In the first Galaxy Zoo, more than 40 million classifications were made in approximately 175 days by more than 100,000 volunteers. Oh, that's yeah. massive. So Amazing. they got people to sign up to the project to classify these galaxies themselves. So I might do four of them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I might do another four and we might do the same two. So each galaxy gets classified an average of about 38 times. And it's way more efficient, obviously, than doing it yourselves and way more efficient than anyone ever anticipated. Galaxy Zoo is still going and has also branched out and led to the creation of something called Zooniverse, which is now the world's largest and most popular platform for people-powered research, with more than a million people around the world getting involved with the research. Obviously, researchers benefit from the citizens' involvement here, but I was also interested to find out how citizens themselves benefit from getting involved in Galaxy Zoo. 
So I went looking for an enthusiastic volunteer and got talking to Els Baten. She lives in Belgium and works as a secretary. And this is where it all began. I got into it quite by accident. I just read a small article about it saying, astronomers need your help by looking at galaxies. And I thought, well, that that looks like fun. So hmm. I um, I entered and, well, the rest is history, as they say. Um, it was really, really interesting. It still is, obviously. And it was the first time I actually was involved with things on the internet. I have... I wasn't so internet savvy as as I'm now, but it was really really fun and uh, yeah. well. It's also you get a sense of of the universe and that was amazing, just amazing. Elle's research is so extensive that she's actually been named as co-author on ten different journal papers. The first one was for her work on Solar Stormwatch. So Solar Stormwatch was um, a project that helped scientists spot explosions on the sun. That's also very special, and it was because I had found lots of dust impacts in the images for Solar Stormwatch, and because I found so many of them, and I uh, actually alerted the the scientists to it that they said, "Oh well, this is really interesting." So they had a paper out about dust <laughs> around the sun. Well, it's, it doesn't sound exciting, dust, but you see, sometimes it is. How did, how did it make you feel when you, when you found out that, that your name was going to be on this, this paper that was making these spectacular discoveries in, in astrophysics? Well, a very strange uh, feeling. So, because when I started out with Galaxy Zoo or any other project, I never ever imagined that I would be on a paper. So... Uh, <laughs> That was really, and yeah, that was really special. And even now, when there are already a couple of papers with my name on it, uh, it's still special. If if the scientists yeah. think your contribution is merits uh, being mentioned on the in the paper, so um, yeah, it's really special. There are lots of space related. Uh, Projects, but also projects uh, about uh, recognizing animals uh, v- via camera traps. Perhaps you heard of Penguin Watch. That's uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's counting penguins in the Antarctic, uh, and that's hugely popular, especially with with younger children. That they, they love it. Yeah. So, so and they can uh, children as, as young as three, four years old can can help there and and it's so fun so fun to see them they get so enthusiastic about it and, <laughs> oh, penguins 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 and uh, this, the project is especially uh, popular right now because they had some well, with all the people staying at home and kids staying at home so uh, there's lots of activity there penguin watch it is brilliant Honestly, it is so good. It is mildly addictive as well. So what you do is you're counting penguins in remote regions to help us understand their lives and their environment. So changes in population, survival rates and the timing of breeding as well. So what you get are um, aerial photographs or time-lapse camera images and you have to count the number of penguins in that image as well. And it is mildly addictive. My daughter loves it. Homeschooling at its best. (laughs) As well as galaxies and animal classification, there are also emergency projects set up to respond to crises where people power really matters. 
that was a planetary response network. And uh, that's a, a project that was classifying images uh, after the passage of Hurricane Dorian in the Caribbean. Ah. And you had the before and after images. Mm. And that is used by agencies to, well, to see where the help is most needed. The devastation was so enormous that you, yeah. when you, you saw the, the before image and there were lots of houses and then you had to take a deep breath and click on the after image because you could just see the devastation was, was horrible. And, yeah. uh, but still people classified and helped uh, and really stayed up late <laughs> to try to get the, the images classified as soon, uh, as soon as possible to help out. Els is such a good person to talk to about citizen science because it's clear that she absolutely loves it and it's changed her life to be involved in the research. I, I, I once was on holiday and uh, there was no uh, Wi-Fi. Uh, so <laughs> it's quite some time ago. And that was really not a holiday for me because I couldn't get on. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> this is a holiday activity for you as well, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's it's not work. <laughs> really, it's not work. It's, it's something I like to do. So, uh. <laughs> Are you convinced, Marianne? Oh my goodness, I am. I mean, while I'm talking to you now, I'm I'm counting penguins on the side. Um, I think, I mean, this is the power of, of citizen science because mm. not only does it give researchers this kind of pool of, of manpower for someone like me, I'm never going to otherwise be involved in, you know, astrophysics research, but it's immediate, it's exciting. It makes me feel actively involved and invested in the science. Yeah, absolutely. It really does connect science with everybody. Like you say, it doesn't matter what your background is, uh, what your specialist is or isn't. You know, there is something on there for you. Um, I never thought I'd be counting penguins. It's amazing. Yeah, it's like <laughs> such a great thing to do. <laughs> do you ever do like a busman's holiday and like start counting solar storms or you're like, no, I do enough of that when I'm actually at work? Yeah, I did try it with Elizabeth actually. So, so I was like, which one should we do? And, and she was like, penguins, penguins. And I was like, nice. what about, you know, what, what mummy does? No, no, penguins. So <laughs> she, she chose what we do. <laughs> burned, burned by the happy feet. <laughs> And if anyone still needs convincing, here's Elle's message to you. Dear listeners, if you're interested in anything, you can take your pick in any of the projects of this universe. You can go and count galaxies. You can go and count penguins. You can just have fun classifying images. And in the meantime, you're helping the scientists. You can get involved in citizen science projects at zooniverse.org. No qualifications needed. All you need is an internet connection. One of the amazing things, Danielle, about Zooniverse is that it makes science accessible to everybody. Mm. And I think that's one of the challenges, isn't it? Because a lot of people feel that science isn't for them. I clearly remember other kids in my science classes growing up who had basically decided it wasn't for them or even worse, been told that it wasn't for them. Yeah, that's um, really bad. Which is just heartbreaking because it, it shuts down talent and shuts down people's investment in this really amazing aspect of life. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But I think there is something that that you've got to relate to as well. So, So as a child, if you see... You know, all the scientists that you ever see either, you know, in school or on television or in the media, 
they're all, you know, if they were all men with grey hair and glasses, that's going to be your idea of what a scientist is. And if you're a young black girl, why why would that be interesting for you or accessible for you? Or, or relevant to your life. Yeah, I think it, people sometimes say, oh, well, you don't need to see someone who looks like you in order to think that that's something you could do. But actually, it's a really powerful it's a really powerful indicator that that is something that is possible. Hmm. It's also important for for us members of the public, particularly kids, to meet hashtag actual living scientists rather than, (laughs) you know, ones from 100 years ago, which are safely (laughs) hidden in a a black and white photograph. Um, But our final guest for the show is going to join us down the line. She founded an organisation that helps young people meet actual real living scientists in their classrooms and at home through live video link-ups. It's Sarah McAnulty from the University of Connecticut. Hello, Sarah. I gave you a little introduction there, but can you tell us a bit more about what you do? Sure, yeah. Um, my name is Sarah McAnulty. I am the executive director of a science communication nonprofit called Skype a Scientist. We work to match scientists with typically classrooms, but in the time of pandemic, we're matching with families that are at home just to have a conversation about science, uh, what scientists do, and, and all about their expertise. How did you come up with the idea? Yeah, so I was on Twitter uh, and we were just sort of kicking around ideas because it was right after the 2016 election and uh, a lot of scientists were super anxious about the state of the country and also uh, just had all this energy and didn't know what to do with it. And so um, I thought we needed some way to get at huge scale scientists talking with the public. And so um, we were just sort of talking on Twitter thinking like, how could we best do this? And uh, Skype a Scientist was one of the ideas that we were kicking around. And so uh, from there, I just figured, let's just give it a shot. What's the worst that could happen? Um, and so I put up two Google Forms on Twitter um, and some on Facebook for the teachers as well. And it just immediately took off. You seem to be combating sort of misinformation, fake news by by educating the public. Does it ever feel like massively overwhelming? Do you feel like you're you're winning the battle? Uh, no, I never feel like we're winning the battle. <laughs> There's so uh, much that needs to be communicated. We also just want to show people that scientists are approachable. We're here to help. And so... Showing people, first of all, that we are a force for good, that we're to be trusted, and that uh, we're just like everybody else. We just happen to be super into one specific thing. (laughs) Is it part of the power of Skype a scientist that you're beaming into a, a classroom where the kids feel at home? This is their space and they get to ask the questions almost kind of as equals with you. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things that I think overall uh, science communicators and scientists in general need to focus on is meeting people where they are and not expecting people to come to you, particularly if you want to reach people that are otherwise not being reached. We have a, There's a lot of talk about how best uh, to reach outside of our bubble. And a lot of what science communicators do um, just kind of preaches to the choir, like what I affectionately refer to as the NPR crowd uh, over here. So um, 
um, finding a way to, to reach people in like non-threatening, non-super academic ways is really important. And so if you can find a way to be on your audience's home turf, I think that's super helpful. Um, and yeah, being uh, in a place that they're already used to in the classroom may help with that as well. Um, this idea of pe- preaching to the choir is... Is there a risk that it's the teachers who are positive about science and about scientists who are the ones signing up, filling in the form and getting their their classes involved with Skyping a scientist? Yeah, so that is for sure a concern. But the way we... So back when I was first forming the program, we were trying to think of a way to reach the maximum number of people. And the reason I picked schools to uh, be our target audience is because, yeah, maybe you have a teacher who's super jazzed, or at least uh, plugged into all the opportunities that are available. Uh, But the kids in the classroom may not um, be as jazzed about science as the teacher is. And um, so that was still an opportunity to reach people who are not yet within the choir. Um, And so even if a teacher is pro-science and, and likes it a lot, um, we still can make ground uh, there from the from the kids' perspective. And we've had some teachers sign up who um, are maybe elementary school teachers. They're not uh, super confident in science. That is a thing I didn't used to know existed. But within um, grade school teachers, science is something that uh, more of them are intimidated by than I would have predicted. And so um, having a, an expert come in can uh, make them feel like, okay, well, we have uh, this person who's really super knows what they're talking about. And so uh, that can make me feel better. I was having a look on your um, Instagram, the Skype Scientist uh, Instagram. Yeah. And the, the diversity in the scientists on there is huge. I mean, it's great. And, and oh, yeah. what I was really surprised about was um, the amount of women on there. And I, I guess I'm saying that as, a, as someone, as a scientist in, a, in an area where you don't find a lot of women um, mm-hmm. in my area so so it's great to see the the richness of the diversity you have yeah um, we so when we're matching up um, either families or classrooms with scientists we ask that group whether over half of their group is from an, a given underrepresented group in stem and then we try to match them with that same group um, of a scientist that comes from that same group. So we can kind of maximize the relatability of uh, the experience with uh, with science. And so, yeah, I mean, I think 65% of our scientists in our program are women. And we have um, a lot more diversity than just male, female, and, or gender diversity broadly. You've got 65% of your, of your scientists signed up to offer Skype scientists are women. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Because 65% is more than you know, the the kind of overall number of women represented in science? Is it that women kind of see the deficit or is it that they're kind of more in touch with themselves and they want to communicate because that's like a female thing to do? That is a tough question. Like, why do women volunteer for all sorts of service? Why uh, do people of color in general volunteer for more service? I think partially um, women and people of color, like, man, I wish when I was a kid, I saw someone like me... um, in science, and so I want to give that to the next generation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you are um, agreeable, I'm going to get my daughter, um, Elizabeth, who was five years old, and she has written down, let's see if she remembers them, of course, but she's written down questions about squid that she'd love to ask you. So is that Great. okay? Do you get her? I'm right, ready. Okay. Right, you've got, some, you've got some questions for Sarah. I'm going to put them into the microphone. Do you want to ask the first one? What's the biggest squid in the world? 
The biggest squid in the world is the colossal squid. So they're about 40 feet long and they're really, really, really fat. <laughs> so there is the giant squid and they're kind of slender and long. They're about the same length, um, maybe a little bit longer than the colossal squid, but they're pretty skinny. And the colossal squid is just chunky and ginormous. And they live <laughs> down in the Southern Ocean around Antarctica. So 40 feet, that's like, what, 15 meters? That's like the length yeah, of a it, bus. they're really, really big, yeah. Whoa. <laughs> Did you have another question about octopus? Is a squid an octopus? An octopus has four uh, or, or eight arms. And a squid also has eight arms, but it also has two tentacles. And so tentacles are these super stretchy arm-like things. And so the squid has the ability to shoot tentacles out, and then they have little clubs at the end. And the clubs are full of suction cups that have little rings of teeth. And so they usually have their tentacles kind of tucked up between their arms, and then when they see a prey item, like maybe a fish or a shrimp, they'll shoot the tentacles out, grab the prey, and then pull them in really quick. And so arms aren't as as stretchy, um, but tentacles are. So basically octopus, eight arms. Squid, eight arms, two tentacles. So they have two extra to work with. That's pretty cool. What a way to catch your dinner. I know, right? If our listeners have a group of people who would love to speak to a scientist or they are a scientist who would love to speak to people, what should they do? They should go to skypeascientist.com. Um, there are options for both. So uh, for group leaders is where you'll look to chat with a scientist. Um, and you just fill out a Google form and then you wait about a week and you'll get your match. Oh, how cute is your daughter, Danielle? <laughs> <laughs> well, she has her moments. <laughs> is she is she now inspired by squid? She is, yeah, squid and octopus. Yeah. She did tell me some things and I'm like, is that true? Or, you know, Wait, are, we, are we talking about Elizabeth or Sarah? <laughs> Sarah. <laughs> I think I think Sarah's probably reliable when it comes to knowledge about yeah. squid and octopus. Oh, I don't know. I got that sense. <laughs> so what's Elizabeth told you about octopus and squid? Well, she said that they have three hearts. I'm like, is that true? Or... No, I'm going to have to look. Sorry. I'm going to have to, you know, and you're like doubting Thomas, doubting her five-year-old of her science knowledge. But I, like I did have to go you're training check. her in the scientific method already. There you go. <laughs> yeah. She needs to, like, deliver some kind of evidence, footnotes. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. mum might not buy it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, never too early to learn these things. Okay, Marianne, what have you learned from this episode? I think I've learned that reaching out and making those connections with the public isn't just a nice thing to make scientists feel good about themselves mm. or for education institutions to go, oh, we also do this fun extracurricular thing. Like <laughs> the stakes are high here. If we don't have broad engagement with science, with clinical research, then people will lose out. Literally, people would die. You know, when we're talking about the people that Colby Brown is working with in the All of Us initiative people's lives literally are on the line if if people are, are left out of the equation of working together with scientists. Yeah, and it's really important that that 
those citizen scientists are a diverse audience as well. So they're not just all the same people from the same place in the world, you know, and, and the fact that your input really matters into that science. And that's something I really got from Els, where she really felt part of that community. She wasn't a trained astrophysicist, but she felt part of that community. And it felt like fun, but but don't underestimate the impact, the positive impact it can have just because you're having fun. Absolutely. And Sarah's work on Skype a Scientist, you know, again, that it had that very diverse range in their backgrounds, you know, where they live, etc. You know, and, and, and we need that, don't we, for the, for the budding scientists of the future. If we don't have that, we can't progress. So that's the end of today's episode of This Study Shows. Thank you so much for joining us. If you want to know more about any of the projects that we've talked about in this episode, visit thisstudyshows.com. Uh, there'll be information there'll be links and you can find transcripts and videos too and if you'd like to get in touch with us you can tweet us at Wiley in research or email us at thisstudyshows at wiley.com we'd love to hear from you This Study Shows is a listen entertainment production for Wiley Research it's presented by Danielle George and me Mariano Hotter it's produced by Maddie Hickish The executive producer from Listen Entertainment is Nick Minter. And the executive producer from Wiley Research is Samantha Green.